I'm going to ask you to turn with me and the Word of God to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And our portion uh, for examination this morning will be verses 1 through 12. I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 1. Uh, After the uproar had ceased, uh, Paul sent for the disciples. When he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given much exhortation, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Purus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we had gathered together. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor was picked up dead. And Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak. And then he left, and they took away the boy alive. And they were greatly comforted. You may be seated. Well, I think we can agree that sometimes when we read some of these passages and the narratives in the book of Acts, that it can kind of feel a little bit like alphabet soup. As you read your way through a text and you come across names like Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus and Tychicus and Trophimus, and we go from one place to the next, and then we stumble across a narrative that's full of dramatic truth, like this poor boy named Eutychus who fell out a window. We may ask, well, what in the world is it? How do we take that alphabet soup and put the words together in order to see what the message is of the text? Well, one way we do that is we step back and we look at these verses and we took a particular section this morning here. We took verses 1 through 12 and one of the questions that we ask when we see a whole series of, of facts and details and passage like this is we ask, what is the center point? What is the centerpiece of this? Obviously, there's a reason in communicating these things and pretty soon we begin to focus in on something here which is important to us. And it's not just the narrative here about this poor uh, brother Eutychus who fell to his death while he was listening to this, uh, the Word of God preached. It's that whole nexus of details which emerges there in a particular situation in the place of Troas and what the people of God were doing there. And so as we step back from the text and we begin to look at those things, we understand that this entire narrative is put together in a particular way in order to communicate a message. 
That message is the marks of a maturing church. That message is really the marks of a maturing church. I think it will be helpful for us to step back just a moment to see how some of these details in the backdrop of our text lead us into that conclusion. And one of the things that stands out to us here is the place. That place is Troas. And we think about Troas, uh, one thing that may occur to us as we think back over uh, the sermons that we've listened to, we remember that Paul has been here before. In fact, we remember that it was a place of great significance because, you see, it was at the outset of Paul's second missionary journey and he was kicking rocks in southern Galatia somewhere after he had revisited the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey and he was wondering what was the direction of the Lord. He knew the direction was mission, he just didn't know where. He had a desire to go in a particular direction. He just didn't know the specifics of it, so he started walking west. And as he walked west, something strange began to happen to him. He was seized by an impulse of the Holy Spirit to go north. Following the leading of the Holy Spirit, he goes north, believing that God wants him to not just go north, but way north. So when he gets north, he keeps trying to go north, and the Spirit comes upon him once again and says, Go west. Well, you know the rest of the story. He ends up in Troas. We said before, it's quite likely when the Apostle Paul landed there due to all of this divine and obvious divine guidance, he must have concluded that God wanted him there for a reason. To plant a church. And yet, wouldn't you know it, as soon as he gets there, he receives a vision. You remember that vision? The vision uh, is the stuff of lore in a sense. It's, it was a vision where uh, the apostles saw this man from Macedon standing on his toes, pleading with every fiber of his being to come on over and help us. Now, the Word of God says at that point something that's a little bit humorous. They concluded that God was directing them to Macedon. You think so? My point is, as we begin to start thinking about the backdrop of our passage, uh, Macedonia is something that's in our mind, but Troas is in our mind. What we think of when we think of Troas is that great missionary moment, which is really a signature moment in Paul's missionary journeys, and it's iconic, in a sense, for the call to mission. The man from Macedon saying, come on over. But my point here is this, that Paul was led to, um, to, uh, to Troas the first time so that it would merely be a launching point for mission, not the place of it. That's why it's all the more interesting to us here that we see the very last city that Paul visits on his third missionary journey is the first city that he landed in on his second missionary journey. You see, he's come full circle now. He has not yet made his way, or I'll get to that in a moment, at least in the narrative of Acts, back to Troas, but it always seemed to have held out a place of promise. But what's interesting to us, as Paul makes his way back here to Troas, it's quite evident from the testimony of verse 7 that a church is existing there now. And not just any church, but a thriving church. 
Well, what's interesting about all of this is that um, as you piece together the rest of the New Testament, it's clear to us that Paul had been here, and Luke just doesn't record it, that Paul had been here uh, after he left Ephesus at the uh, latter part of his third missionary journey, and he had been there long enough to plant a church. And here's what it means for us, and we'll get into the evidence for that in a moment. Here's what it means for us. This church which Paul had planted and which he is revisiting now, before he finally sets sail to go back to Syria and then Jerusalem, what is of interest to us is this is the last church recorded in the Word of God that he built... This is the last church which he built at the end of his third missionary journey. And what that tells us is, is that Paul, when he built this church, had at least 10 years of church planting under his belt. He had planted churches all over southern Galatia, but then in Macedonia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus. My point is, the building of this church comes at the end of a long series of church planting endeavors and efforts. And as we begin to zero in, and I do believe one reason why Luke zeroes in on this is so that when we take note of this most mature work of Paul's hands, what we notice is that this church was a mature mission. This church was a mature mission. And therefore, what we want to think about is, what is it about this church? What are the theological ideas uh, that uh, led to it being this mature mission? So we want to think about that broad idea of a mature mission this morning. But before we get there, we want to examine just a moment the origins of this church plant, just so that we can assure ourselves that this is indeed Paul's work. And we think about the origins of this church plant. One of the things we might think about, first of all, is Paul's philosophy of church planting. And I think it's important, not because it's directly related, because it's indirectly related to reinforcing the point that he did plant this church, even though Luke doesn't record that for us. And we learn about his philosophy of mission from something he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He said, And I thus aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Now, let me just uh, put this in your thinking also, that Paul wrote the letter to Romans from Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. So this gives us insight into Paul's missionary philosophy at the time, or closely related to the time, when he planted this church here in Troas. But what's instructive for us, there are a couple of things here the Apostle Paul says. And the first thing is, he had an aspiration to preach the gospel where Christ hadn't been preached. And that word aspiration points to some deep internal motive or drive or desire. It was his very own. It was peculiar to him in a sense the apostle could say. He had this deep compulsion that guided him in his missionary endeavors. And the compulsion was this. He would not engage in missionary work or preaching where somebody else already had been. Where Christ was not yet named. That was the only place he would go. And he gives a reason for that. He said, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. Well, that tells us then that this uh, Troas church here had to have been uh, planted by Paul because here he is, they're preaching. 
Well, when did Paul then plant this church? And that brings us into the origin of this church plant in Troas. And there's a passage that opens us up for us. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. If you turn there, you'll see exactly what I mean, that Paul uh, went here to this city of Troas on a missionary mission. He went there for a purpose. And you can find that in the very language of verse 12, as the Apostle Paul said, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was open for me in the Lord... And what I'd have you put your uh, focus upon there is the travel log. Notice the travel log here. I came to Troas, and then we had completed his work. He said he went on to Macedonia. Now take that travel log that we've kind of inserted in our forefront of our thinking here and come back into Acts 20, verse 1. And notice here that Paul, when he's done with his work there, he said after the uproar had ceased. And of course, that's the uproar that we saw back in chapter 19 around uh, Demetrius, who was uh, stirring up provocation among the trade unions over matters related to the gospel because the figurine business was drying up. After all that was over, well, Paul sent for his disciples and he said that he was going where? To Macedonia. He doesn't tell you that he stops at Troas, but we piece that together now as you come into the testimony of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.12. He came to Troas for the sake of the gospel, and then he went to Macedonia. And this makes perfect sense, because if I were to travel from from Ephesus to Macedonia, the most logical and concise route would have been this, to go north up the coastline from Ephesus to the city of Troas, and then jump on a ship to go across the Aegean, to Macedonia. But what's clear to us from Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians is he didn't go there just because it was on the way. I would have you return to the language here of the Apostle Paul. When I came to Troas for the gospel. That prepositional phrase, for the gospel, is a preposition of purpose, of intentionality. He wasn't just going there because it was the next stop on the travel route to Macedonia. No, the Apostle Paul tells us something that Luke does not record. He says, I'm going to Troas for Christ. And if you keep on reading in this testimony about what he did there, you can see that he had quite a fruitful mission. He says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. You see, it was a place that he intended to go. He had prayed over going. And the thing that happened there is spectacular. He went and he found a door. Now I remind you this morning, people of God, that we have on numerous occasions traced out this metaphor of a door. And what we've established is it's a shorthand way to speak of great gospel opportunity. It's a way of speaking of great gospel opportunity and witness. We can confirm that from a passage which Paul wrote not too uh, long in terms of distance or time from all of this. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. He is writing to 
the people of Corinth while he is yet in Ephesus. In other words, before he jumped on that ship and, and went up the coastline northward to Troas, he tells the Corinthians that he's going to hang out in Ephesus for a while for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. Well, we've just been through Acts 19. We know exactly what that door looks like. That door looks like the Apostle Paul going into the synagogue in Ephesus and reasoning with him for three months. That door looks like the Apostle Paul shifting the ministry focus from the synagogue in Ephesus to the school in Tyrannus. And there, it says in verse 10, from that little lecture hall, the Word of God spread all over Asia. What it means for... Uh, uh, the, the minister to encounter an open door is, is summarized in verse 20, that the Word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. You see, we know what an open door for ministry looks like. It, it, it means there's a great opportunity to preach the Word, and not to just preach the Word, but people are hearing, they're submitting to the Word, and they're believing in Christ. So when we read here on Paul's own testimony that uh, the door was open, we understand that when Paul went, the ministry was thriving and the word flourished. We get a tiny little indicator of a church being left behind in the remainder of verse 13 there when he says, uh, I had no rest uh, in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. I took my leave of them. It's slender. It's quite obvious Paul is leaving a church behind. It's not my intention to go into why he was distressed over Titus not being there, but suffice it to say he had sent a letter with Titus to the Corinthians, which is called the Letter of Tears, because it was a letter of severe rebuke for their haughtiness and their arrogance and their pride. And he had... Uh, prearranged in advance that, that Titus would meet him in uh, Troas after that. And when he didn't come in on the last ship of the year, which would have come up from Corinth to Troas, he was crushed in his spirit, so much so that he could not continue on in the ministry. But the thing I want to lodge in our thinking here, and I know that it also may have felt like alphabet soup like some portions of our text does, is that as we piece together a number of details and we compare Scripture with Scripture, one thing that is obvious to us this morning, people of God, is that Paul had had a thriving ministry in Troas. He had been used by God in His grace to raise up a church there, and that church was the fruit of Paul's most mature work as a missionary and church planter. We see the evidence of that now as we come into verse 7, and this is really where I want to settle this morning. As Luke uh, really does uh, something for us, as he zeroes in on this place, Troas, and the events that happened in the space of just a handful of hours as the church gathered for worship. And in all of this testimony, we find evidence of a mature church. So let's turn now to see the qualities of a mature mission. And I would have us note that the very first quality of a, of a mature mission in verse 7 is a church that's Sabbath-keeping. Notice here the very way he introduces the whole situation. He says, on the first day 
of the week. On the first day of the week. And it's important for us to note that time difference or that numeral difference when he goes out of his way to accent the first day because immediately what it calls to mind is it's not the seventh day. I know there's different ways to reckon this. You could reckon what the first day was from the evening right after the the day turns from the Sabbath day to the first day. Or you could do a Roman accounting, which would be midnight to midnight. I'll leave that for you to uh, do your own reckoning on time there. There's problems and there's uh, positive points in both. But the clear thing is that Luke does for us here is he goes out of his way to tell us it was the first day of the week, not the seventh day, which would have been the Jewish Sabbath. And the language is important when we say uh, that this was the Christian Sabbath. Because you'll remember what the Apostle Paul said uh, about this in Colossians 2. He says, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or new moons or Sabbath days. What is he referring to? He's referring to the seventh day Sabbath. And he's saying, you're not to be judged about this anymore because that was a type. It was a shadow. He says that along with the festival days and the diets and all the peculiar activities bound up with the ceremonial law. The apostle said those things are shadow and they were shadow of the body, which is Christ to come. And so one of the things that the Apostle Paul was saying there is that the observant of the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, was something typological, and it's over because it's been fulfilled in Christ. And so the observance of that day is abolished. But not the moral principle. That's the key. Not the moral principle, because here you can see that the church is doing something out of intentionality. On the first day of the week, they were gathered, which means they were gathered for worship, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But one of the things that we're thinking here is, why are they doing that? The answer is because they understood it to be a moral obligation. They understood it to be a moral obligation. The Westminster Larger Catechism speaks about that moral obligation of the fourth commandment when it says, what is required in the fourth commandment? And the answer is the fourth commandment requires of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such times as he has appointed. And it goes on to say, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection, it was the seventh day. And from the resurrection of Christ until the end of the age, it is to be the first day, which is the Lord's day. And then it uses the language, which is the Christian Sabbath. But the point in all of this, which which we can't miss, is that there is a moral obligation in the fourth commandment that the church is to set aside a day for the worship of the Lord. And here we have the church worshiping on the first day. We think about that idea of the first day in Scripture, at least in the New Testament, and there's a bunch of things that we should associate with it. Number one, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on what? The first day. Matthew 28, 1, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. Obviously, the reference there is to the Jewish Sabbath and the seventh-day Sabbath. It says after that was over and the day begins to dawn on the first day of the week. 
We also learn from John chapter 20, verse 19, that it was on the first day that Jesus came and met with His disciples. It says, when it was the evening on that day, that is the first day of the week He came and stood in their midst. And you'll remember that our friend Doubting Thomas wasn't there, right? And he said, I'll never believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I'm able to put my fingers in the nail hole and thrust my hand into His side, and then only will I believe. And our friend was confirmed in faith a week later on the first day when John says that he came again and he appeared in their midst and he said, my peace be with you. So we're already seeing some significant things going on on the first day. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day. We have the appearances of Christ to his disciples on his first day. And then we have Pentecost being on the first day. Acts 2.1 makes it very clear that after the Sabbath was over, that is the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, the Spirit of God was poured out. You see, if you go back to the Old Testament legislation from Leviticus 23, you'll be able to calculate that the Pentecost was supposed to be 50 days after the end of the Sabbath, which concluded Passover. So now we have a a second massively critical redemptive historical event, not just the resurrection, but the outpouring of the Spirit of God on Pentecost. It seems to have been that the apostles were able to, to draw some significance out of that, because as you look through the New Testament, you have testimony now of the church gathering together. You have our text here. You also have 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each of one you is to set aside. Notice again, we have the reference here to the first day, and that tithes and offerings be taken up. Well, we know from uh, contemporary records that this is precisely what would have been done in the worship of the synagogue on the seventh day. It would appear the apostles saw that as a model, something to be carried over now into the New Testament and the worship of the Christian church. It's just that the difference now is on the first day. We also have the testimony of Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Notice here, he doesn't say, I was on the Spirit on the Sabbath day, that is the seventh day, nor does he simply say he was in the Spirit on any old day. He says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, if this doesn't mean a particular day that the church was already aware of and observing, it makes no sense to anyone to call it the Lord's Day. It must have been a well-known day. And in view of the testimony of our text and the things I've talked about here, about what's occurred on the first day from the resurrection of Christ forward, it's obvious to us that the Lord's Day is the first day. Francis Turretin, that great 17th century Protestant scholastic theologian, looks at all of this evidence here, and here's his conclusion. Substituted the Lord's Day for the Sabbath. He says that's what the apostles did. They substituted the Lord's Day for the Sabbath and commended it to the churches, not without the special influence of the Holy Spirit, by whom they were infallibly directed. Notice here that Turretin is saying, what is the moral principle to be drawn out here? 
We have appearances of Christ. We have resurrection of Christ. We have the Pentecost, a Pentecost, the Spirit being poured out. All these examples of the church's meeting on the Lord's Day or the first day. Says, the reason is because they have been directed at agents of Christ. They've been directed by the Holy Spirit to do so, to prescribe the first day as now the day in which the church gathers for worship. Now, I want you to come back. We've seen this idea of this repetition of worshiping here, but the thing that is catching to the eye here is the rest of what verse 7 says. They gathered on the first day to break bread. Now, what is of interest to us is this is the very first time in the book of Acts that Luke explicitly says the church was gathered on the first day. It doesn't mean that they weren't at other times. certainly means they were here. And he's going out of his way to say that was so. Now think about that verb gathered, because it's used throughout the New Testament to speak of the public assembling of the people of God for worship. You can find it used to describe the gathering of the Jews in the synagogue, and you can find it used of the Christian churches gathering on the first day or the Lord's day for worship. And the fact that it is worship is expressed by two ideas here in verse 7. We're told they gathered to break bread, and then Paul began talking to them. Now, what's interesting here about that first phrase, they gathered to break bread, is again, we have a preposition of purpose. They gathered for the purpose of breaking bread. Well, I'll come back to that in a moment and show you that this isn't a potluck. This is for the Lord's Supper. Which tells us they gathered to worship the Lord. And one of the elements of their worship was the administration of the sacrament. We'll come back here and notice the word talking is a terrible translation by the New American Standard Bible. Really what they're doing is listening to the preaching of the Word of God. So all of the, the, the elements of worship are here in the very description of the things that Luke says they're doing when they gathered on the first day. So as we're thinking now about the qualities of a mature mission, the first thing that jumps off the page on us here, because literally it is placed at the initial portion of the narrative about the things which were characteristic of the church in Troas, is they were a Sabbath-keeping church. Not the seventh day, but they regarded the first day as that which was perpetually binding by way of obligation. They were to gather together to worship the Lord. Luke goes out of his way to highlight it. The fact that the church is gathered there indicates that Paul must have emphatically taught it as a requirement for the church. They begin to think about that this morning, people of God. It makes perfect sense. You cannot have a maturing and thriving mission congregation that doesn't regard the Lord's Day. Remember what the purpose of the church is on earth. The purpose of the church on earth is to proclaim the truth in order that men who are lost in their sins will be able to rightly acknowledge God and what? Worship Him. But if a church doesn't do that, how in the world can it fulfill its office and calling? 
If a church doesn't prioritize what God prioritizes, which is His own glory and His own worship, how can it flourish? You see, the requirement of the fourth commandment is a, is a resting that there may be a holy convocation, a resting that there may be worship. You see, there is a moral obligation of the fourth commandment which remains, and it's not observing the seventh-day Sabbath. No, we know that. That was circumstantial. But there is a moral obligation that abides in the fourth commandment. It's that we rest in order that we may come to meet the Lord in worship. And that's a requirement. And I find it interesting that it's the first thing out of the gate that Luke emphasizes here about this church. And I take that to mean it must have been something that Paul emphatically proclaimed. And as I look back now, over 15 years almost, having planted this church, I have regrets. I wish I would have done the same. You see, it was always my idea that if you had a church where the, where the worship was conducted according to the regulative principle in the Word of God and you had the full menu of the means of grace on tap every single Lord's Day, that it would be easy for people to be motivated to make the Lord's Day the centerpiece of their weekly schedule. Sadly, what I've seen too often over the years is that we spend a lot of time making excuses for why we can't be here. I must conclude that has to do with the lack of being convicted of the moral obligation of the fourth commandment. You see, what comes with being convicted of the moral obligation of the fourth commandment is a reverence for the Lord. Think about it. The very way we saw it, we say it's the Lord's day. It speaks of a reverence for what's peculiar. This is the day of the Lord. It's full of reverence. And the notion that it's a day of reverence, also a day for worship, tells us something about our priorities. One of my greatest priorities in life is that I understand that my entire schedule revolves around not me, but the worship of God. And therefore, all of my priorities now have to come under alignment of that priority. Because if I don't begin by honoring the Lord with my week, certainly won't do it the rest of the days of that week. Something moral about this. And Luke goes out of his way to show us a mature church plant. We're going to see the rest of the indicators of the maturity of this church plant. But surely by introducing the church with this thoroughgoing, intentional commitment to worship on the Lord's day, he is showing us something which is at the bedrock and foundation of their maturity in Christ. They remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's a moral obligation to rest from our works in order that we may come before the Lord in His worship. The second thing we see here is that this church was means of grace oriented. This church was means of grace oriented. We've already indicated that just a bit, but let's take the elements that we see here which appear in our text and draw them out. And the first thing that we see here in terms of their uh, commitment to the ordinary means is they committed to hear the preaching of the Word of God. 
There's two different words here in our text which highlight the fact that what Paul was doing was preaching. And I usually commend the New American Standard because it's almost always most literally accurate and correct. But here it says that Paul was merely talking to them. And again, in verse 11, a different verb is used uh, where it says again that he was merely talking to them. But let me tell you, neither of these verbs is that weak. The second verb talking in verse 11 is homileo, from which we get the discipline of homiletics, which is preaching. It's not talking. But this other verb here is even more powerful. It's verse 7, talking. No, it is dialegamai. It is the word that is used repeatedly by Luke in this book of Acts to describe Paul preaching. Acts 17.2, we're told that Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica and talked to them. No reason same thing in 18.4 that in Corinth he was reasoning in the synagogue. The same thing in Acts 19.8 in Ephesus he was reasoning. And the word means to have a reasoned discourse, a verbal presentation that is coherent with an argument and with persuasion. He wasn't having a polite conversation This wasn't a social gathering. They were gathered for worship, and one of the elements of their worship was the preaching of the Word of God. Why is that a mark of maturity, though? The reason it's a mark of maturity because it is one of the means of grace, and we love to talk about this great theological principle which the Reformed highlight is the means of grace, and we have two of them, the preaching of the Word of God and the administration of the sacrament. And one of the reasons why we delight in the terminology and the conceptual language of the means of grace is because when we say preaching is a means of grace, we say this is how we receive Christ. You see, we completely misunderstand what preaching is if we think it's an opportunity for us to just get some information. To learn the dictionary definition of a Greek word we've never heard of before. One reason why we might say some of those things is so that there is understanding. Preaching is an argument. But at the end of the day, one of the things that we confess and hold dear about the preaching of the Word of God, it is a means of ministering Christ. Love how the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of it. It says that preaching is the exercise of the office of the keys. And one of the things that it says there is that as often as I hear the gospel proclaimed, I am called to find my hope of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the point of the preaching of the gospel for us in worship is not purely a missionary function, it's a function for the saints that you come in here after a difficult week full of trials and frustrations. You have anxieties and cares and all kinds of matters burdening you and weighing you down. And one of the things that you desperately need is to be refreshed. We need renewal spiritually. We need our soul fed. Who is the food? Christ. He himself says it. I'm the bread of life. Our world is out there selling us counterfeit bread. There's all kinds of bread. You can walk out the doors here and up and down the street and all around us. There's all kinds of counterfeit bread. 
the bread that we need is Jesus Christ. What we need is to have assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. What we need is to have Christ proclaimed unto us so that we know He is our hope, He is our life, He is our wisdom, He is our sanctification, He is our righteousness, He is our peace, He is our help. That's what the point of the preaching of the Word is as a means of grace. Right here at the heart of their worship, and we'll come back to this more in a moment, right here at the heart of their worship is this, a commitment to gathering together on the Lord's Day for worship, to partake of the means of the grace, which is the preaching of the Word, because it's through that ministry of grace that we become mature. You see, the more that I hear of Christ and the more I'm persuaded of the forgiveness of my sins and the more I savor the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of Him being my Savior, the more I am filled with gratitude. And the more I am filled with gratitude, the more I desire to be like Christ and the more I desire to be like Christ and to grow in the knowledge of His Word and of His truth, I'm going to seek to live that. That's the life of growing in spiritual maturity. And the fact that this is so characteristic of them and the whole way that Luke describes it in terms of its intentionality tells us this is a mature mission. They have been taught well. They have been taught that they are to set aside the Lord's day for worship and to meet Christ in worship that they may be nourished by Him through the preached Word. And now secondly, through the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper. Come back to your text here into verse 7. It says, When they were gathered together, to break bread. And here's where I need to take just a moment to remind us, people of God, this isn't a potluck. That verb break is the very same word that Luke uses to describe Christ in the institution of the Lord's Supper, taking up the bread and breaking it and giving it to His disciples. This verb is regularly used to describe the breaking of the bread as a sacramental act in the supper of the Lord. So we have a really solid argument here, just in the very language that is used, to believe that this isn't just a potluck, this is not something social, this is worship. I think Calvin had a few different arguments he raised. They were common sense in nature. But one of them caught me, and see if this reinforces you in your perspective. He says, if this is just a social meal, it's quite strange that they're eating after midnight, which obviously isn't supper time. People don't eat after midnight. So in a sense, that makes sense. But there's something else here in the grammar of our text. They gathered together to break bread. I already mentioned to you that this is a preposition of purpose. But here is what's being said is that they gathered for worship for the purpose of breaking bread. Now that may sound strange to our reformed ears. Maybe not yours if you've gone to All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church your whole life. But the broader Reformed Church, surely that that sounds a little bit strange because we wouldn't find it strange typically in the Reformed world to say that we met for the preaching of the Word or we met to hear the reading of the Word or that we met for prayer or for praise. We typically don't use this language in the Reformed world to say that We met for the breaking of bread. We met for the supper of the Lord, as if this was just characteristic and situation normal when we gather for worship. But then I was caught by the comments of a couple 
old Reformed commentators. Matthew Henry comments here, in the primitive times, that is in the ancient church, it was the custom of many churches to receive the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. He looks at the language and says, what's obvious is they're gathering for worship and their intention was to break bread. He says, there's a text that shows some churches at least, when they gathered, they had the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. How about Calvin? On the strength of this passage in Acts 2.42 says this, We ought always to provide that no meeting of the church is held without the word, prayer, and the dispensation of the supper. You see, it's not strange at all in his way of thinking. This is what the church ought to do. Why? Why ought this be something that the church does when it meets for worship? And the answer is found yet again in what the supper is. It's a means of grace. A quote here from Larger Catechism, number 170. It says that they that worthily communicate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body and the blood of Christ. Not after a corporal and carnal manner, but a spiritual one, yet truly and really, by faith, they receive and apply to themselves Christ crucified and all of His benefits. See what we mean? We say it's a means of grace. So much of that gets obscured if we reduce the Supper of the Lord to a mere memorial. When we memorialize someone, what is most distinct in our thinking about our memorializing of them? They're not there. But that's not true in the Supper of the Lord. Christ is here. Christ meets us in the Word and the sacrament. His Word tells us that. When we, when we come to the table by faith, our own standards summarize accurately the Word of God says. We're feeding upon the body and blood of Christ. Not in a carnal manner, but spiritually, really, truly. We are receiving Christ crucified in all of His benefits. It's a means of grace then. What marked this congregation out as mature then is that they knew something about themselves. They needed grace. They needed Christ. They couldn't go another week without it. That they understood that when they gathered there together as as believers, that what they desperately needed was the Lord. They needed to be sanctified and renewed by His grace. And so they manifest their maturity by what they're committed to gathering to worship to be renewed and sanctified by Christ and His grace. Well, there's a third mark of their maturity here, and I think it's fairly obvious to us all at this point as we take up some of the same details in our text and then orient ourselves to slightly different perspective here, but I think you can see it quite easily, is they had an eager attentiveness to the Word. And the way that's swept out is perhaps almost humorous to us. Because here in in verse 7, we see something of that eager attentiveness. They hung on the preaching of Paul's word until midnight. Notice that he began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. 
I can take it a step further. After the incident, which I describe here in a moment, uh, they came back and they listened to him preach until daybreak. So it's not just that they listened until midnight, it's they listened till midnight, had a very dramatic pause, and then they came back and they listened to him preach until morning. Obvious indicators of what? An eager attentiveness to the Word. But something else that happens here that's transacted in this evening worship service uh, shows us, in a sense, their unbreakable commitment to to, uh, the eager attentiveness to the Word. And it's in the story of this poor guy named Eutychus. And, yeah, I know our text says that he was a young man. That probably doesn't do justice to it because the word that used here means that he was anywhere between 7 and maybe 13. This is a kid. I mean, a real small kid. I call my son's kid, and they're in their 20s, but that's not, this is a real kid. This is somebody, and they're seven, eight, nine years old, and he's sitting there listening, and you've got to imagine the scene here. This poor boy named Eutychus is up here in this third-story room. It's probably stuffy and warm in the springtime, and there's all these torch, torches there to light up the room, which means there's barely any oxygen, and all these people crammed in there, and the Apostle Paul going on and on and on, and uh, the very placement of him indicates to us he needed a breath of fresh air. He's probably dozing off to sleep as he sat there listening to Paul. So he goes and he sits in the windowsill with the window cracked so that he can breathe. And the Word of God indicates to us that sleep just fell upon him. It's, he's passive in the sleep, just coming upon him and resting on his shoulders like a log. And the next thing we know, the poor kid fell out the window three stories down. And make no mistake about it, it says he died. It says death came upon him. It says Paul picked him up dead. This is not uh, somebody just uh, swooning or unconscious due to head trauma. The language of the text is quite obvious to us. He died. So here it is, midnight. They've been listening their way through, powering their way through listening to a sermon for hours, probably. And this poor fella falls to his death, and Paul uh, breaks out in a full sprint, runs down the stairs, lays on top of the boy, prays on him. And next thing you know, the boy is revived. He comes back to life. We have a miracle here. He is raised from the dead. And yet, what does verse 11 tell you? When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and they left. You'd think that everybody would have had it. Most people can't listen to a sermon until midnight. But no one can listen after drama. No one can listen after this. You'd think people would have said, well, that's that's called a day, Apostle Paul. I mean, you're a great preacher and the message is wonderful, but doggone it, I'm way past my bedtime now. And after, doesn't this tell you, this poor kid, he fell asleep and died because he loved the preaching of the Word so much. Let's call it good for today. Now they went back and they listened until daybreak. And again, the verb here is far too strong to be talk. Humaleo, he preached. See, people of God, the entire picture that emerges here as you look at this is this was a congregation that was eagerly attentive for the Word. This is a mark of maturity. 
a mark of a maturing congregation is that they love to hear the preaching of the Word of God, that they will be well-founded in Christ and His truth and His grace. And so everything that Luke includes here and what feels at first like alphabet soup is a very important message about a mature church. And what is it? It's this kind of a church that we see in Troas. We might be asking this morning by way of application of what makes a church mature like this. What makes a church mature like this? Hungry for the means, attentive to the word, could listen for hours, seem to be unfazed in their desire for the ministry of the word. What accounts for it? One thing you can't say is because it had been around a long time, it hadn't. At most, it had been there for a year. These are fairly new converts, and yet, in terms of the thing that they desire, and in terms of their commitments, it's quite obvious that they are maturing in faith at an accelerated pace. So what accounts for it? And again, I return to where they would be placed on the time scale of Paul's missionary journeys. If I had to just keep myself within the four corners of this text and of this document, what I think you could draw out of here quite uh, conclusively is there were two things that led them to be this kind of a maturing church. One was pastoral wisdom, and the second was uh, unyielding commitment. The first was pastoral wisdom. Again, I say that the Apostle Paul planted this church last. It is the most mature fruit of the work of his church planting hands. Imagine how many times Paul walked away from those church plants saying, I don't know if I did it right. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to be here. I don't know how long that they're going to prevail. I don't know how how long this is going to... Carry on. But you see here, we have evidence now that after all of those years and after all of those church plants, Paul has learned. It seems to us that the things that he has learned are the things that he has emphasized to this congregation. Two things that stand out here in terms of what they learned must have been what he emphatically proclaimed. And number one, respect for the Lord's day and its worship. And number two, Commitment to the ordinary means of grace. You see, what he had to have emphasized and what they picked up, which is evident from the characteristic details here in our text, is they understood their calling. Their calling as the people of God was to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to remember the Lord's day, to rest that they could be at worship. There's no way a congregation can be maturing in Christ and His grace without that kind of deep respect and reverence for the Lord. Sunday is not the day to schedule all of the activities that you wish you could have done Monday through Saturday, just couldn't shoehorn them into your schedule. This is the day when you say, I'm manifesting my respect and my deep reverence for the Lord and His worship by saying I'm clearing everything off so I can make sure I'm meeting with the Lord and worship as He commands. That's the reason why I've been made and that's the reason why I have been redeemed. Commitment for the Lord and His worship on the Lord's day. In order to do that, There must be a commitment to clear off the schedule. You see, if we don't do that, we'll be continually ensnared by all of the things which overwhelm us. 
So I was reading through Francis Turretin again last week and his exposition of the fourth commandment. He said something that greatly helped me. He said, it ought not to be pressed, that is, resting on the Lord's day. It ought not to be pressed on account of itself, as if it were a part of the worship, or as if the day itself were holier than the others, but as the condition and help of public exercises. We seek the means on account of the end. You see what he's saying here? That my resting from my labors is not a part of the worship itself, and it's not on account of the day being holier than the other days. The reason why we rest is because it is the means unto the end, which is the worship of God. And if I don't regard that way, I won't be faithful in it. And so we understand that the reason of the call to rest is in order that we may find ourselves in God's worship. We can see whether we're maturing in our Christian walk by what we make as our priorities. We can do that. We can see how we're maturing in our Christian walk by what we make as our priorities, which is uh, setting apart that day, the day of the Lord, for His worship in order that we be gathered to worship Him and to lay hold of His grace in the Word and the Sacrament. Luke goes out of his way to show us here this morning, people of God, the path, the pattern, and the way. It's right here. On the first day of the week, gathering together to break bread. May God help us to pursue spiritual maturity uh, through the means which He has appointed. Father, we thank You for a testimony which teaches us our duty and also the reason and the promise of it. And it's uh, great to be instructed by an old church from primitive times, but yet had learned its lessons well, which is there was no safe guidance and there was no stability in the Christian walk apart from reverencing the Lord's Day and its worship in order that we may learn to be sanctified by Christ and His grace. God, keep us humble in heart and mind that we would receive instruction from Your Word. And that as we hear uh, this principle, this calling, to be a peculiar people of God, sanctifying the Lord's day for worship, that we may grow. Help us, Lord, to have the grace uh, to respond to with humility and obedience. And Lord, that we may experience uh, that wonderful working of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is His patient and gracious and perpetual sanctifying work, conforming us to His image. This is what we need. And we plead with you, God, that you would strengthen us and fill us resolved to learn this kind of obedience for the glory of your name and the good of your church. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.